2: Join me for these intriguing stories and more. Perhaps you may be the one chosen by fate to solve a mystery.
0: are many reasons to have Rob Christofferson on your show, but I thought today we'd take a break from the news and the social networks and, and dive into something that always gets us excited and terrified, and that is Unsolved Mysteries. Now, You not only have done several roundtables on our Strange Skies podcast, Rob, on this show, but you know more about these cases probably much more than anyone else I know. So today I thought we'd take a look back at some of the most memorable UFO segments to ever grace the Unsolved Mysteries television show. So Rob Christopherson, welcome to Unsolved Mysteries, the UFO Stack Pack Hour.
3: (laughs) (laughs) i love it thank you for having me on yeah uh, unsolved mysteries is uh where my ufo education began
0: (laughs) it has to start somewhere man i mean hey mine was probably i'm trying to think what was like the first thing i ever saw maybe maybe one of these segments it very well could have been um Definitely X-Files was a big one for me, Mm -hmm. you know, made UFOs actually look cool for once. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) yeah, that did it for me. But, um, I'm astounded when you and I decided to do this, we, uh, we went back and looked at pretty much all the cases they covered. I know there's some we're probably missing, but, um, there was so many first time witnesses coming forward on Unsolved Mysteries. I had no idea, like It's astounding, the people that they were able to get for each of these cases.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this correlation between the public exposure of uh, UFOs and eyewitnesses coming forward because you kind of saw similar things happen after Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. And there was this interesting article I read in an old issue of Flying Saucer Review. And the, the title of the article was called A Case of Rabbit Snatching. And it was about this... A uh, guy who was in his thirties at the time, but when he was a teenager, he lived at an orphanage and he had rabbits that he kept. And these rabbits kept disappearing. And eventually, he had this like extraordinary encounter in his bedroom with these beings that materialized out of nowhere and uh, it appeared at the like side of his bed and. I don't understand how the guy wasn't freaked out, but he wasn't freaked out about it. And he saw it as a positive experience, became a very spiritual person after that. But he came forward to tell a story after Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure there is an influx of reports that probably come in when stuff like this a curse cuz it's now on the minds of people and that actually came up with one of the skeptics in one of these episodes which we'll get to um this idea that like these shows they compel people i mean look mm-hmm. at unsolved mysteries overall i mean right. they were solving murders and um people drowning in quicksand left and right am i correct <laughs>
3: Yeah, pretty. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries and uh, Rescue 911 with William Shatner. They definitely helped to make it seem seem that way. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, we we kind of. We worship Robert Stack over here, um, but we're going to talk a little later about um, his actual thoughts on UFOs because um, doesn't really line up with a lot of what we're going to cover today, but that's a whole different story. But um, let's kind of – I guess we'll go in chronological order, Rob, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, of course, they had to cover the mother of all cases, Roswell. In 1947, a strange craft
2: crashed in a remote New Mexico field metal debris had startling property was covered with unusual markings. Witnesses claim it was a UFO. The military here at Roswell Army Air Base in New Mexico immediately announced that the object was a UFO. Within hours, changed their story and said it was only a downed weather balloon. Did the
0: military conceal the most astounding discovery of the century? And we open on uh, McBrasso, the, the main guy. man, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's looking like a young Sam Elliott and we, we might as well say right here. So they reenact everything on the show, which is amazing. And I mean, Mm. they do a really, really good job. So yeah, we open on McBrazil angrily eating dinner during a thunderstorm (laughs) and dude, that mustache. That was something else.
3: Yeah, it was. And I actually wrote down exactly that this guy looks like Sam Elliott. Oh my God.
0: Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: It's it's pretty amazing. Uh yeah, you get Mac Brazel just sitting there eating dinner. There's a lightning storm going on all around and uh all of a sudden he just gets up and he's like, that didn't sound like any just old lightning strike and he goes out to his front porch to look out. See if he could see anything and uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a very nice dramatic shot. of the Oh, man. yeah.
0: What a way to start this thing out. And I mean, so, yeah, you know, he, he goes out there. He hears this. And we know uh, the Wilmots were some of the first to have come forward and say they saw something going through the sky that night um, and that it was kind of coming down and possibly crashing or landing. And then we get uh, we get one of the first interviews ever with Loretta Proctor, one of the ranch mm-hmm. owners next door to Mac Brazel. And oh my God, man, she was a sweetheart. I would have loved to have met her.
3: Yeah, absolutely. She uh, very approachable, down to earth kind of person. She attests to Mac Brazel being you know this kind of guy that wouldn't make stories up. He was trustworthy, and uh, yeah, he everything that's to come with the guy is. Uh, probably definitely happened to them.
0: Exactly, yeah. And I think that's going to be a running theme too tonight is uh, Unsolved Mysteries loved spending time on, like, giving credibility to the people coming forward with this stuff, like to the point where it was like, okay, we get it. They're a normal person. They're not crazy. We get it. We get it.
3: Well, like, that's that's the thing. And I made this point on Twitter, I think, last week, but it's like there are two categories of people that are – a ufo witnesses that are good and they're either trained observers or they're people so mundane in the world that uh they couldn't possibly be making it up
0: <laughs> yeah it is pretty it's one or the other it's one of the yep. other all right so we see uh oh kevin randall makes an appearance in this with an equally epic mustache i must say
3: Yes, he's bringing the mustache, you know, bringing the broad-shouldered suit. I love it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, this was interesting. So for those who don't know, Kevin Randall is one of the leading researchers on Roswell, you know, along with Tom Carey, Don Schmidt. um, And I thought it was interesting. Randall refused to call the debris, the metal that was found in the the desert that night, metal. Metal. He, right. he kept stating that the original description was like a shiny plastic. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting because even to me, to this day, I think of all this stuff as having been metal, like straight-up metal.
3: Yeah, and even Loretta Proctor because uh, once Mac Brazel goes out the next morning, which is July 3rd, 1947, he finds the debris field, which is about three-quarters of a mile long and uh, I think like – few hundred feet wide. He he takes some of it. He goes to the Proctor's, his closest neighbors. And when I say closest neighbors, they're like 10 miles away or <laughs> right. something like that. Right. And uh, Loretta Proctor described uh, the wreckage that he had as kind of wood. But then she would say, uh, you know, if I, you know, talking about it today, I would say it more resembled like plastic. But when they tried to light it on fire because I guess everybody just tries to light, you know, random pieces of debris on fire. Uh It wouldn't do so. They couldn't cut it. And uh it, it, yeah, I found that very odd. Like it's not metal it's plastic that's very strange to me
0: it it is it is um but you know i mean that's what they saw and what they experienced i thought i thought this is funny too after they like tried to burn it cut it and all that (laughs) um they cut back to actual loretta um talking to us and she's like oh yeah i mean mcbrasil said we should probably go out there and check out what it is and then she says we should uh we didn't (laughs) just yeah we we probably should go out there and see what crashed but now we 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 didn't do that so great (laughs) they they had other more important things going on than a crashed ufo on their uh, gotta
3: go you gotta tend to that livestock man you gotta make sure that farm is running
0: hey that's a good point yeah that is (laughs) their bread and butter for sure yeah um. So, I mean, this kind of follows the, you know, the narrative of Roswell. They phone Roswell Army Airfield. Jesse Marcel comes out to take a look. And uh, this was cool. They showed an interview with Jesse Marcel Sr. from a documentary, uh, which they didn't really do often on Unsolved Mysteries, like use other footage from other things. So I thought that was pretty cool.
3: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they they really don't. You know, sometimes you'll see like a, a map that's like computer generated that they draw or something like that. But like, yeah, it's never usually other uh, video footage. So I did enjoy that part of it for sure.
2: There were just fragments strewn all over the area, an area was about three quarters of a mile long and several hundred feet wide. So we proceeded to pick up the parts. He says I tried to bend this stuff. He says it will not bend. I even tried to burn that. It would not burn. See, that stuff weighs nothing. It's not any thicker than tinfoil in a pack of cigarettes. We even tried making a dent in it with a 16-pound sledgehammer. Still no dent in it. One thing i was certain of, being familiar with all air activities, that it was not a weather balloon, nor an aircraft, nor a missile. It was something else of which we didn't know what it was
0: yeah it was a great interview i think you can find it online in its entirety this is a pretty condensed version but um yeah so i mean marcel goes out there with a sledgehammer he starts going to town on this thing which i'm just imagining like a military guy in uniform middle of a desert like (laughs) going nuts on a piece of plastic you know
3: right i love how uh yeah they've got sheridan cavett holding it and marcel's just like trying to smack the <laughs> hell out of it it's so
0: great it's like all the dudes in the first thor movie trying to get the uh the hammer out of the yeah, ground, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hold my beer oh man um all right what else do we? do oh jesse marcel jr as well we get his story about his dad bringing wreckage home there's these eye beams with weird etchings on them and uh then we get a sweet phone acting between Walter Hot and uh, Colonel William <laughs> Blanchard about yes. the flying disc.
3: It's so great. it's so great too. Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, yes. What do you want, sir?
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're so angry over the phone with one another. It's like just yeah. do what I tell you. Um, <laughs> here's my question. Uh, Stack says that the wreckage. Was flown to Wright Field, Ohio, which is like what most of us know. But they made the stop in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, Rob, I know this was—I think this has been proven. But do you know why some of it was brought to Fort Worth before they went to uh, Wright Patterson?
3: Uh, Not really. You know, it's just like we're gonna make a quick stop, but like it—it doesn't really make sense unless they decided i don't know in the air or something like that something. Uh, it maybe maybe word got to them that uh they had leaked or had gone to the press to say oh we recovered a flying saucer maybe they got word in the air i'm not sure
0: yeah i don't know either um i mean but kevin randall even says in this episode like he thinks stuff was getting shipped everywhere he says langley mm. cia headquarters mcdill air force base in florida like what the what why why is some of it going to Langley, some to Florida, some to... Te- I, I? This is interesting. Maybe it was all a plan to, like, keep all the stuff separated so that no one could find out where, like, the one true source was for what they found. I don't know.
3: Maybe, but, like, it makes sense to go to right field because, I mean, Air Technical Intelligence Command is there. These are the people that basically study, like, reverse... Not reverse engineer. Well, they kind of reverse engineer, like... Uh, enemy technology and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it ma- it made sense at the time, but like it doesn't really make sense to ship things here there and everywhere when you have one area that does that. It's it's not like a lot of experimental stuff goes on at the bases that they were talking about, but you know, yeah. it, uh, a lot of people have added on to the Roswell narrative uh, ever since this came out and uh, it should be noted like this is the first time that Roswell was broadcast to a general public. This is where it blew up, yeah. is on Unsolved Mysteries. And, like, it aired, and uh, the season premiere was, I think, September of 89. Uh, and they re-aired it in January of 1990, and it got even bigger ratings the second time. So, Oof. like, the idea of like UFO crashes was something that even in the UFO research world was kind of like shelved for a long period of time. It's like, no UFOs didn't crash. The government doesn't have anything. It's all just, you know, the, the misidentified stuff. And then, you know, in 78, when Stanton Friedman gets the first inklings of, uh, you know, a UFO crash and has told to talk to Jesse Marcel, mm-hmm. That same year is when Leonard Stringfield delivered his presentation about uh, uh, crash recoveries. So, like, it all started to come out at the same time, and then... This is where Roswell started to become a household name.
0: Right. Yeah, you're so right, man. Like, without a few chance encounters and, like, rumblings here and there from Friedman and Jesse Marcel Jr. and everyone, like, this may never have seen the light of day again. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of people to thank for that. And they do have Stanton Friedman in this episode. And, you know, this was the first time I'd seen him in something or heard him. Rob, since he passed away, and just hearing his voice and seeing those eyebrows, it brought back so many good memories.
3: (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. I had a smile on my face. I'm like, God, I love this man. He just, his convictions, he sticks to them. It's so, so great. So great. I think what's interesting here, too, is uh, Hot takes the press release physically to like the different news agencies and the radio and all that stuff so i found that kind of interesting you know yeah. instead of like sending out a wire or something like that you're hand delivering it personally that's interesting
0: that is yeah you gotta wonder like hopefully like nothing gets lost in translation like it has to be word for word you know i wonder if that had something to do with it i will we, we'll never know um no that's a good no. point though that brings up the whole you know controversy with This headline comes out, RAAF captures Flying Disc and Ranch near Roswell, and then the next day it's retracted. We all know that story by now. You mentioned something, Rob, about uh, adding on to the Roswell story, and Mm -hmm. they kind of did this in the episode with this dude, Barney Barnett. Now, this wasn't yeah. a story I'd heard of. This was a an engineer out of Socorro, which we'll get to. Um, just a coincidence <laughs> with that one. But uh, yes, dude from Socorro, New Mexico, he finds a circular craft and bodies. So now we've raised the level of Roswell, not just debris, not just whatever, metal plastic, but um, bodies. Four bodies on the ground in spacesuits, he said. So yeah, had you heard about this dude, Barney Barnett?
3: Yeah, um, he was a kind of a big guy in Stanton Friedman's book, uh, Crash at Corona. And the the thing about him is like the stories about Barney Barnett coming upon the crash site are always second or third hand. Uh, but apparently he told a lot of people about this. And what's interesting is, is like later we're we're told about the MJ-12 documents and the in and the memo. And in particular, it says in the memo that the crash site was discovered, I think, like two or three miles from the debris field. Well, the thing about uh, Barty Barnett is that he wasn't two to three miles away. He was like 75 miles away on the plains of St. Augustine, which uh, was kind of the central thesis of Crash at Corona is that at, at the Corona site, you had the debris field, you know, right outside the ranch that Brazil was working on and then 75 miles away you had the actual craft there and like the the narrative has kind of changed over the years to some say it's two craft and then some say well no the craft was discovered yeah to a couple miles away from the ranch but like that's the thing it it gets kind of confused here but I had heard Barney Barnett's story before and I'd also heard the story of the archaeology students that stumbled upon it at the same time that he did and there's kind of an update later. It's maybe like three or four years later in the same episode uh, uh, that you're covering another story from in this episode. Mm-hmm. But okay. uh, I there was another witness that allegedly went out there and saw the bodies too. But um, yeah, Barney Barnett, he's kind of just this... Infamous guy known by name because, like, he uh, it, it, Stanton Friedman never met him, he died in 1969. But, like, everybody just came forward, uh, when Stanton Friedman was doing the initial research for on this case. And just basically said, oh, yeah, I talked to Barty Barnett. He, he talked about the story all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, let's uh, let's stay on Stan Friedman for a minute here, Rob. I've never actually asked you this, and I can't believe it hasn't come up in conversation, but Majestic 12. Um makes an appearance in this episode as well. And what are your thoughts on MJ Twelve? These papers—have you ever looked into it? Do you think there's any credence behind any of it? Yeah. What? What do you? It, what is it? First of all, would you mind telling some of our listeners who might not be familiar with it what exactly this this thing is, and should we even pay attention to it?
3: So, following the uh, Roswell crash allegedly truman put together this group of 12 members that were allegedly designed to cover up aliens existence and the roswell incident and all this stuff and i don't put a whole lot of stock into it just because like i know majestic 12 was a thing i just don't think it was designed to you know keep UFO secrecy in place. I don't think that's what it was there for. I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, in my conversations with MJ Benias, he pointed to um, other documents that indicate that MJ12 was more related to atomic fallout. But the the thing is, is that the the way that the documents made became known is through you know Bill Moore and Jamie Chandra, and you know Bill Moore. He went on later to just basically, you know, spoil his career in ufology and hung right. it up in 89. So, like, you kind of got to look at those documents, you know, with a grain of salt because, like, it's almost cinematic when you read about the way that these documents were dropped off because it's basically Jamie Chandra was sitting at home and this uh, package just like is like shoved through his mail slot And uh, he uh, he gets this envelope and inside it there's like film and they develop it. And it's like, oh, there's these memos like right here. And like it's something that's built on over the years. Like the Psalm 101 manual is part of the MJ-12 documents. There are like other documents that even came out just like a few years ago. So it keeps getting added on to. But I just don't. I don't put a lot of stock into it but I mean Stanton Friedman did everything that he could to try to authenticate those documents even uh <laughs> John Tenney uh helped with that back in the 80s I guess like when they were trying to test like the typewriters that they would use he he offered up his typewriter and uh, with a sample so <laughs> it's, nice yeah it's um it's part of that 80s disinformation age of stuff where you have to take that information with a grain of salt there are good cases out there and some of them are going to be featured in this episode but yeah I just I I take them with a grain of salt I don't put a lot of stock into them but they're an interesting part of this crazy UFO history
0: yep absolutely it's all part of it somehow whether we want it to be or not you know and of course i knew tenny had to be somewhat involved with majestic 12 somehow some way six degrees of john tenny <laughs> probably will find yeah. a way to connect him to every case tonight
3: <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah
0: um well we get a good uh a good um testimony from captain pappy henderson who said mm. He uh, flew with this stuff and saw bodies, this, that. I don't know, Rob, anything else in this episode that you really thought um, was worth bringing up before we move on?
3: No, I think I think we've hit on the the major points. I mean, it, it was nice to uh, it, it, Stan Friedman comes out and basically says, "Well, the reason they would want to cover this up is because we just went through a Second World War, and nobody would be able to handle the existence of extraterrestrials at the time." Which, God bless that man, I love that man for <laughs> coming at at us like that. But like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. That's why the Roswell uh, mystery endures is because. Because there is no definitive answer, and yet there are more people and more accounts that keep getting added onto it after this, and I mean, there's mm-hmm. been countless books written about it, so uh, definitely the classic case example of what ufology can offer up.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean, you still have idiots making television shows about Ros- Wait, wait, what? I- <laughs> wait wait you wait isn't that you ryan i thought there was someone else in uh my studio here never mind it's just a mirror whoops (laughs) anyways uh moving on to uh actually not moving too far uh year-wise yes but not location we're moving to socorro socorro new
2: mexico 1964 It began as a routine police pursuit, just a wild teenager tooling through town and ended with one of the most remarkable UFO episodes in history, a close encounter still impossible to ignore.
0: Rob, I know this is one of your favorite cases, um, so this is going to be a fun one. We open on Lonnie Zamora, literally (laughs) parking at the police station, a car whizzes past And um, he immediately gets back in his cop car and starts pursuing this car for speeding. That dude, whoever was in this car, had a lot of guts speeding past a police station like that.
3: Well, uh, yeah, and I love it because, like, if you look at the guy on the screen, he doesn't look like he's going all that fast. No, no,
0: no, no. He doesn't. But, um, man, Lonnie Zamora was ready to meet that quota, wasn't he?
3: He he had severe regrets about the not meeting that quota at the end of the day. And I just it, it makes him so much more human. But, yeah, I like how they set up this, like, cinematic approach here. At the beginning, <laughs> you got Lonnie Zamora just exiting his vehicle. and He turns around dramatically. He's like, I got to catch that.
0: It was a slow day. I think he even admitted that in this episode. But um, at the same time, he's pursuing this dude like what I would assume was for a really long time. They're going through the city and then they're going out into the desert. So, I mean, whoever was, you know, in that car was not stopping for Lonnie Zamora anytime soon.
3: No, he wasn't. He was just like, I'm wondering if the guy was just completely oblivious to the fact that he was being chased by a police (laughs) officer and says, I'm just joyriding. You know, I got my top down. I can't hear anything. Is that a police siren? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, let's just keep going. (laughs) Let's just
0: keep going. Or let's get really conspiratorial. Maybe he was leading Lonnie Zamora out to where something is about to happen. What do you think? Right,
3: right. It, it almost seems like a setup in many ways, especially when you read the account in in any book that you want to pick up. It's just like, was this dude set the fuck up? You got to kind of wonder. And I'm like, I don't really want to feed the skeptics because fuck the skeptics at this point because their other explanations are dumb.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get a few uh, of those dumb explanations uh, as we go on here. But um, so let's kind of paint the picture for... Anyone in the audience that doesn't know about this case, we have Lonnie Zamora, who is, we should mention, a cop, um, if that wasn't clear already after what we just talked about. But um, they got him. They got him on camera, and he's recounting this event. And um, I just love hearing him tell this story. So, um, Rob, would you mind maybe giving us, like, the Cliff Notes version of what happened once he got out there and noticed something in the sky?
3: Yeah, so... As they're approaching the edge of town, Bonnie Zamora sees this kind of like blue flame up in the sky and he hears this roaring sound. So he knows that he's in the approximate location of where a dynamite shack owned by the mayor, which just sounds like the beginning of like <laughs> a zany ass fucking comedy here. But like, he's like, oh, it must have exploded. So he turns off onto this gravel road and he, it, it leads to kind of an arroyo. He crests this hill. It takes him a little bit to get up there. He, he has to try a few times. But uh, as he crests uh, the first part of it, he sees uh, what he thinks is an overturned car and a couple of people. Halfway
2: ways I could see a white object to my left there. I thought it was a turnover car. When I got up on top of the mesa there, I looked down. And I seen this uh, big white object on uh, the ground. I could see something around the craft there. I could see some figures. It looked like they were walking around the craft.
3: They make it seem like he saw these people the entire time on the show, when in fact he actually didn't. Uh, our research when we did the episode on Lonnie Zamora showed that he only saw these like humanoid figures for probably about three or four seconds. Wow! So
0: I did yeah. not know that. Wow! Good work. Yeah.
3: In real time, he lost sight of him for about 35 to 40 seconds. And he he comes around this clearing and he can see not a car, but what looks like an egg-shaped object suspended on legs sitting in this arroyo. And he stops. He gets out. he, he, He looks at it. And then all of a sudden he hears this. It's like a low pitch sound that goes to a high-pitched sound. He hears a, a roaring sound that begins then, and he sees this blue flame shoot up from underneath this object. It lifts up, and it, it doesn't lift up very high in the air, about 20 feet, but uh, he's looking at it from the safety of being behind his car, essentially, and he watches it kind of slowly float uh, away, like barely clears this neighbor, this mayor's dynamite shack and then just speeds off into the desert. At first, you know, after I got
2: to my senses, I said, did I see it or didn't I, you know, or, what happened, you know, and um, that's it.
3: And from that point, he radios a deputy, Sam Chavez, who come out, they inspect the landing site, they find Uh, These bushes that are singeing, but when they go and they touch them, they're actually cold to the touch. They also find circular indentations in the ground and a couple other burnt areas.
0: So there's a few things uh, I just want to interject here, Rob, in terms of uh, how detailed uh, wow, I almost said Mysteries Decoded. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> blah, wrong show. Um, unsolved Mysteries, uh, how they covered uh, the, the craft itself. It looked so good, first of all. Yeah. In this. The special effects yeah. were amazing. And second, when he first gets sight of this egg-shaped craft, you can see the reflection of the craft in his sunglasses. Like, dude, they went all out for this Mm -hmm. one.
3: This is probably the best example of when Unsolved Mysteries really puts their dollars into making a story really good, because uh, if you look at some of the earlier ones, dear God, the CGI was terrible. We'll get into some of those. But like, this is probably the best example of a UFO. It even has the insignia that he claims to have seen on the side of this thing and it kind of just like looks like a beat-up egg just like hovering in the air but it doesn't look hokey it looks kind of real and then yeah it speeds off but like uh the guy that they got to play zamora plays his part you know perfectly well and uh i i what i love too is the interview segments, they interview all these people against the backdrop of the desert, which mm-hmm. just, you know, adds a little more authenticity to it. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely the best example of UFOs in Unsolved Mysteries.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, I mean, yeah, like you you mentioned the symbol. Now, I know this is something you've looked into a lot as well. Um, now, in the episode, they have – They describe it as a vertical arrow with a horizontal line beneath it and a crescent-shaped line above it. Now, I know this episode is pretty old and there's been some, you know, debate on what the actual symbol was on this thing. How do you think they did with that, Rob? Is that what, you know, Lonnie says was on there? The thing is, is that...
3: Uh, in the research that we found, there was an individual uh, by the name of Captain Moody. I think he was a captain. But he was a member of Project Blue Book. And at the time, mysteriously, he was at White Sands Missile Range working on a project called Project Cloud Gap. Now, Project Cloud Gap was ruled out in the initial reports as being responsible for uh, the sighting here and in fact they went uh the project blue book folks went into detail trying to figure out well is this a lunar lander that was being tested out that just mm. managed to fly into this arroyo and there was 11 allegedly 11 of them in production at the time and none of them matched the description but uh moody was kind of a spearhead in this investigation early on like uh it wasn't Uh, Until a few days later that Blue Book actually took over the investigation. It started with the FBI, who was also mysteriously in town that day doing something else. But uh, one of the rumors and one of the things that we think he did was he told Zamora to lie about the symbol and basically that. Uh, If he did that, we would know if there were other eyewitnesses that came forward, what the real symbol was. So one possibility is, is that the symbol that he drew is intentionally the wrong symbol to throw people off to, you know, for any other additional eyewitnesses that would come forward. The other symbol and what may be the actual real symbol looks like an A with three horizontal lines running through it.
0: Interesting. Okay. All right, I can I can kind of see the logic behind that. Um you you did mention other witnesses and we did get a sense of that in this episode, which is pretty cool. They had this this dude Jim grinder who was 13 at the time. He was traveling with his family and they stop at a gas station and they tell the gas station attendant like, "What What do you got going on in your town here? This thing, this oval-shaped thing, like, passed right over the hood of our car. So, I mean, if this is true, if this is another testimony to the event, at least we now know it doesn't just rest on the shoulders of Lonnie Zamora.
3: There was that eyewitness, and I think there was a—there might have been another eyewitness that claimed to have seen it, too. But, uh, yeah, it, it lends a little more credibility I mean Jim Grinder was a, a teenager working at his parents gas station so it's yeah. great it's a great story but uh that has actually been one eyewitness account that has been kind of bolstered and it's one that is considered trustworthy when it comes to this case so yeah it's it's good that somebody else seemed to have witnessed it and they kind of attested to the fact that uh, they saw Lonnie Zambora or they they claimed to see a cop you know running in pursuit of it so interesting. yeah
0: interesting yeah if we can connect those dots you know game over man but um well let's move back to the uh the I guess we could say the military investigation with this. So within 90 minutes of the incident, army officials from White Sands Missile Range show up, headed by Captain Richard T. Holder, who they actually got on camera as well. Um, again, go unsolved mysteries, like just bringing out the big guns with these things.
2: Well, my first impression was that it was something from the range that needed possible help, you know, first aid, attention, or at best security. The more I got into it, the less convinced I was that that was a case. To try to find out if we could see any evidence of anything, it would make us think it was a hoax. We found nothing.
0: You know, there's people that gathered around the site at this point and, uh And this is interesting. We get a reenactment of the captain. He goes to a branch on a scorched tree and literally tastes it. And that was yeah. the extent of the investigation. He's like, uh, Nope cordon this area off. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, yeah, there's a there's a small group of, uh, you know, onlookers, onlookers out there, including yeah. one little kid who's apparently selling, like,
0: popcorn or yes! peanuts out there. <laughs> I'm so happy you saw that, too. Okay. What the hell was up with that? I mean, <laughs> get your peanuts, get your popcorn. What the hell is this kid doing out there?
3: <laughs> right. Like, are, do we need... this type of concession stand out at (laughs) it out at a ufo site like maybe there's a lost epic economic opportunity there i'm not exactly sure but i feel like i feel a little bad that this kid was shut down
0: (laughs) i know yo that is an entrepreneur i mean i will tell you this man whenever like um not to get dark or anything, but when 9 11 happened, like the next day there were people on the streets selling t shirts, you know, like right stuff like that. So I mean that stuff happens. I just what an Easter egg in this episode. <laughs> like what is this kid doing in the middle of the desert at a UFO site hawking cigarettes or popcorn <laughs> or something? Um right. <laughs> Man, man, I'm glad you caught that too. Let's <laughs> see. Um well the army captain that we mentioned, he backs up. Lonnie Zamora.
2: Everything we saw seemed to support the story that Officer Zamora recounted. My impression of talking to him was that he was mystified. He wanted an explanation. Nothing gave me the slightest hint that he did this as a hoax or cooked it up for fame or fortune.
3: That's the thing is like everybody that's uh, talking about this case is like, I immediately thought it was this. And then when I found that it wasn't this, I was like, well, he experienced something. I just don't know what it is. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. And I'm like, that's the perfect encapsulation of, like, any legitimate UFO encounter. It's just something happened. But we have no fucking clue.
0: And, I mean, this is what's kind of heartbreaking. We know this this event kind of really affected Zamora and his career. Uh, and you know He was getting hounded by reporters after this from all over the world. He was sick of talking about it. He didn't want to be known for this and uh, kind of drove him to retirement, if I am remembering correctly.
3: Yeah, he uh, ended up retiring and running a waste treatment plant. this stopped me all over town and wanted to know this,
2: wanted to know that, and then I got phone calls from all over the world and I, I, I was getting, you know, disgusted with it.
0: There you go. Hey, we all have a second life in us somewhere. So, you know, he probably does regret following that speeder out there. Or not speeder, as it looked like in the show. But, um, yeah, man. Oh, but we also got, like you said, Blue Book came out. We get probably... Our first ever televised reenactment of J. Allen Hynek before Aiden (laughs) Gillian, there was this actor on Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm not counting Close Encounters because he was not himself in that.
3: Yeah, uh, I remember – oh, man. This is – yeah, this is an interesting memory that I have after watching this because, like, Unsolved Mysteries is like a family thing for us, so – it was usually on a Friday night, so the family would gather around watch it. I think I saw, or uh, Rescue 911 was on Tuesday nights, if I remember correctly. But I
0: think you're right. Yep.
3: On Fridays, we would watch it, and I remember this case affected me a fuck ton at the time because it was just like, this is a cop. He, he fucking saw this shit. Everybody's attesting to the fact that he saw something that they can't explain, even to this day. They can't. Fucking explain it, but like we were doing this project in middle school, and I think it was in sixth grade at the time, sixth or seventh grade. And in our English class, we were doing this project. That uh, uh, where we were like kind of breaking apart the lyrics of we didn't start the fire <laughs> and just yes. like a, a, and doing presentations about all of the shit that was like in there. So like, you know, it, it was pretty much kind of broken down by decades. So the teacher gave us like, OK, you you go research this by the decade and, and that by the decade. But uh he uh, the other part of the project was, well, what would we add to it? You know what could we replace some of the lyrics with? And I distinctly remember because like the the computer system that we had at the time was new. I went to the search engine and I typed in the fucking name J. Allen Hynek, and I'm like, it never came back with anything. But I'm just like, that name never left my consciousness after that. I don't. I don't. I really to this day I can't fully explain what it is about this case, but it was just like. It's it? it just, it rocked my young adolescent mind.
0: We all have that case, man. And mine is coming up in a little bit here. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that Socorro is one of the best cases out there and has genuinely mystified even the heart most hardened of skeptics. So, um, and that has a lot to do with the credibility of the witnesses, which is, you know, big with these things. Um, And that couldn't be more true than our next one. And this... This is an interesting case. We have Falcon Lake, May 20th, 1967. So we are moving over to Canada, Manitoba.
2: By his own admission, Stephen Mikulak is an ordinary man who leads an ordinary life. But in 1967, Mikulak claims that his life was turned upside down when he had an extraordinary encounter with a mysterious flying craft.
0: We get you know, nature-loving, bird-loving Stephen Mikulak mm-hmm. right <laughs> at the start of this one, which was so refreshing. I wasn't expecting to see him on camera for this case. So, um, yeah, yeah. Did you know anything about this case, Rob, um, prior to, to this episode?
3: Uh, yeah. I, uh, Man, like, Stephen Mikulak is probably, well, sorry, Stephen Mikulak, because they call him Stephen Mikulak in the, in the episode. His name is Stephen Mikulak. Oh, from- that's good to know. Yeah, he's from Poland, so um, he's probably one of the most interesting uh, UFO witnesses that I, that I've um, you know ever researched or anything like that. But uh, he was a he was an amateur uh, geologist. You know, he he did it on a, on the weekends, and uh, basically what he would do is he'd go into the Manitoba wilderness and he'd look for quartz veins, because quartz veins would often lead to silver deposits. So this was his amateur hobby. And in 1967, May 20th, 1967, he decided to go out into the wilderness. You know, he told his family, see, ya, I'm going to look for silver. And he uh, <laughs> he goes up the night before and he sets out early the next day to uh, go and, and look. And shortly before... Um, I want to say it's like uh, 9 o'clock that morning. He finds a quartz vein and, you know, he's just going to town, going to town. He has lunch and then gets back at it. And a few minutes after lunch, he um, notices that there's some geese that are just like going nuts, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, He uh, he looks over at him to see what the heck startled him and he looks up and he sees these two what he describes as cigar shaped objects with a bump on the top of them. And one of them flies off, but one of them starts to come down closer to where he is. And dear God, the CGI on these UFOs is
0: terrible. <laughs> what are you talking about?
3: <laughs> no, like, it looked fake as
0: fuck, and you <laughs> can tell. This is probably, in terms of the UFO coverage on Unsolved Mysteries, this was probably the worst CGI they did. <laughs> I can admit that.
3: Yeah, yeah, and um, this UFO lands on this rock field near uh, where Stefan Mikulak is. And the general shape of it that they got on the show is correct. That's exactly pretty much what he saw. So he, uh, he goes up to it and he thinks at first that this is an American experimental craft and it's having some kind of trouble so he goes up to the craft and he says hello there yankee boys having trouble
2: <laughs> thinking of usa i said okay yankee boys A yankee boy seems to me you are in trouble yankee
3: boy. If you got troubles i'll help you <laughs> Come on out. We'll see what we can do about it. Oh, and, le- and when he doesn't get a response in English, she starts talking in uh, German, Russian, Polish, Italian. Uh, there were a bunch of languages that he knew. My and-
2: God. When his English received no response, Stephen tried Russian. I can help you. Then Polish. Well, please, please. I can help you. And finally, German.
3: And he just like yelled it at this fucking UFO. <laughs> so a door on this thing just opens up. Like it, it just, just he, he said it like kind of just like slid open to the side and he Kind of approaches up close to it. He has uh, welder's goggles on. He's a welder by trade. He's uh, an industrial mechanic. And... He puts down the visor to look into this thing, and the CGI inside this goddamn craft is terrible. <laughs> it's
0: right, sad. and I think he even admits, at least his son does later on, in a book that his son helped co-write, that like, they kind of just made that up, what was in the craft. Because yeah. he didn't really actually see too much inside of it, from what I remember. No, no,
3: because it was like a you know really bright light coming from inside. But he described hearing... What he thought were voices. And the way that he does it in this show is so fucking great. I love it. There
2: was a kind of shrieky talk
0: like a a kids
2: in Problem or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Well, while you're on that, Rob, dude, this guy is like... He is a performer, you know, he, he is. he's a good storyteller. So like having the actual witness on there and having him be that engaging, I think only adds to the story. And some people might think that's a bad thing, but for me, I'm like, damn, like this dude is passionate about what he saw and like he is reliving it as he's telling this.
3: Oh yeah. Like you can catch him like uh when he's describing looking up at it for the first time and he's on camera. Uh, describing it he's looking up as if he's reliving it at the time and like he is he's very passionate about the story and it's something that carries on even uh after the initial encounter but like uh, after you know he kind of peers in a little bit the door on the craft closes and it kind of lifts up a little bit and it rotates and in front of him is this like grid of uh, it looks like an exhaust grid yeah with
0: like portholes almost yeah yeah
3: and uh, he is shot in the chest with uh, hot gas and it immediately catches his shirt on fire to which he <laughs> rips it off and <laughs> and stuff like and and to make the point, he this craft was landed on this rock for approximately thirty minutes. So he was actually able to sketch this thing out in his notebook before he like even approached the damn thing. But um, you know, he uh, starts to wander out.
2: And then I decided, I said, now is the time for me to buzz off from here. Go out. So I start going.
3: he He's like half naked yeah kind stumbling of
0: stumbling through the woods
3: yeah and like i just want to note that the guy that is stumbling in this episode has clearly never stumbled a day in his life <laughs> and you can fucking tell
0: <laughs> yeah that he didn't really get the director's note on uh how to stumble correctly no. what's up guys ryan sprague here and i'm just dropping in to remind you about our patreon campaign Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. Well, before we, we get to the next step, Rob, I have to say, I don't mean to laugh at this guy getting caught on fire, but the way they did it in the show was yeah. just so comically over the top that I had to stop the episode because I was laughing so hard. Uh, but that being said, like, if if that actually happened to to Mikalak, that is terrible.
3: Yeah, it is. It's not one of the best experiences that you ever want. But yeah, it is kind of comical in the way that it uh happens. But um yeah, he uh he estem- he essentially stumbles to his pack to find his uh compass to figure out how to get back to the road because he needs medical assistance. He's in a lot of pain. He's nauseous and he finds that Uh, His compass is just spinning wildly. and He doesn't know why. So it takes him a little while. I think it takes him like an hour. But he finally stumbles back to the road. And uh, what they don't tell you in the show is that there is a car that passes him. And he tries to flag it down and initially just drives by. And then it comes back. And it's an RCMP officer. Okay. And... He explains what happened to him. He explains that a UFO fucking shot him in the chest with some gas. Basically, a UFO farted on this guy because <laughs> he smelled like sulfur. So we we know, you know, this UFO farted on him. It's disrespectful. UFOs should not be farting on people. It's a real problem in this case, and I hope it never happened to anybody else. But
0: Yeah, it's a uh, a cosmic crop dust. Yeah,
3: it really is. And... This RCMP officer listens to his, to his story and he turns to him and he says, sorry, I have other duties to perform and he drives away.
1: What <laughs> <the> <laughs> hell?
3: Yeah, this is in uh, the uh, original like articles that um, uh, Chris Rutkowski actually wrote for flying saucer review and for nycap uh there's pdf copies available out there but mm-hmm. uh the report is just wild but yeah he he claims that's what the rcmp officer told him and he drove off wow. and it took nicolac somewhere in the neighborhood of four hours to stumble back into town he was doing his best to kind of keep his distance from people because he thought he was like radioactive or something like that but he ultimately buys a bus ticket to go back to Winnipeg, where he's from, and he's taken to a hospital, and where they kind of, like, they, they don't really do a lot for him. They give him medications for, like, his nausea, and for some other symptoms, but they don't really know what's causing it. And they ruled out radiation poisoning, which is weird, because the guy has kind of, like, symptoms of radiation, by and large, but...
0: Right, yeah, we should stress, like he had these circular burn marks on like his lower abdomen that matched what he says was the same like grid on the portholes of the craft. So if you're right, if, if, if that exhaust came out and burned him, like it matched perfectly to the sketch he made of the craft that he saw. So yeah. Yeah, Interesting.
3: Absolutely. And eventually he actually ended up going to the Mayo clinic in um, Minnesota and uh, they studied him for about a week. He goes back and, like, for a while, he actually had to fight to get his medical records because uh, they never sent them to him. He actually... I believe it was uh, John Keel and another researcher named Berthold Schwartz, who actually helped him fill out like medical release forms in order to get his stuff. But they never found anything, hmm. you know, out of the ordinary. But what he noted was like every I, I think it was like every three weeks, the like grid pattern burn that was on his abdomen would dis would come back. It would disappear and then come back and the symptoms would come back from it too, which is wild.
0: Yeah, that's pretty weird.
3: But uh, the uh, investigators did end up going back to the site where it had occurred, and they found like that there was like radioactive ore running underneath it. Uh, but they found that there was like a large burnt area on this rock where it was black. So. You know, some physical evidence there. They found I I think there were like some trees nearby that had branches that were taken off, too. Um, But there was also uh, a year after the incident happened, Mikalak returned to the landing site again with a friend. And they found this like very strange kind of like silver that was coated with radioactive ore that a lot of people think was, like, planted for some reason.
0: Yeah, yeah, they found it, like, not too far below the ground, I think, but enough where people are like, oh, it looks like it was kind of freshly dug in there.
3: This is one
2: of the biggest mysteries and one of the biggest puzzles, and skeptics have pointed to this as the reason why the case should be discounted. Why would particles and metal fragments of this size and radioactivity have been missed by all previous investigators? And this is one mystery that we don't have definite answers to this day.
0: You have that
3: going on, but uh, I mean, otherwise, this is like a pretty solid case.
0: It is. It's solid. And I think, uh, you know, the Canadian Air Force got involved with some people from the U.S. They came down to investigate and, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Chris Rakowski was a big... uh, part of this entire thing. And, um, you know, to this day, says it's one of the best cases Canada ever had. And I'd have to agree. I mean, you know, there's some bumps along the way with some dubious researchers that Michelac got involved with. Um, But that happens to any UFO witness, you know, you got to be careful who you end up working with, because their intentions might not be as how would you say, altruistic as you'd hope they'd be. But one of the other things, Rob, I thought was interesting, uh, in the book written by by his son, he remembers when Unsolved Mysteries came to film his father for this. And uh, during breaks, one of the guys one of the, like, crew members kind of passively said to to the father, oh, man, this must have been the most difficult and, like, most remarkable experience of your life. And his father shook his head and said, no, being in a concentration camp, escaping to America, joining the army, and going to Germany to translate and dismantle concentration camps was the most difficult part of my life. Yeah. Holy shit, dude. So at this point, like, all of the Unsolved Mysteries crew are gathered around, and he's, like, regaling them with these other stories. So I mean, even this dude might have witnessed beings sort from of another world land, but he can even say to himself like I've experienced much more difficult things in my life.
3: Yeah, absolutely. He's uh I I I love that man so much. And, I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the fact that you spent how many languages could the dude speak? It's just crazy. Like I I, I wish I could have met this guy. You know, unfortunately he did Pass away
3: yeah he passed away i think in the uh 90s yeah at some point yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so i mean we kind of only have his story to rely on at this point but like i said his son has been very vocal he co-wrote a book with chris radkowski and and his father about all of this so definitely i think people should check this one out is it is definitely one of uh the most underrated cases i think out there but here's one here's our next one rob august 20th 1976 the allagash abduction
3: um, I hate this one so much Ryan I hate it
0: you hate it well too bad brother <laughs> we we're, we're going we're going full, full on dude uh-huh. nude with this one
2: who are they and where do they come from are they real or imagined in recent years hundreds of people have come forward with startling accounts of abduction by alien beings and the fantastic saga of the alagash 4. Four young men who claim that they were abducted by aliens during a camping trip in the Maine wilderness. Their chilling story may seem unbelievable, but more and more people have become convinced that such accounts are based in fact, not fiction.
0: Allagash Abduction. This episode covers a bunch of different UFO-related stories, but um, this one actually focuses this segment we're talking about on the Allagash 4 case out of Maine. And it opens immediately with... uh, we get one of the men, Jack, recalling um, that he wakes up in this unfamiliar room and he's completely naked. And to his left, he sees a, a in a trance almost, his brother Jim and uh, their two friends, Chuck and Charlie. And uh, ooh, then it just goes full on alien abduction from here, man. Um, do you wanna you wanna run through this one, or you want me to do this?
3: Uh, I'll, I'll, I've I've covered it, so I'll I'll run through it right. a little bit. God so- bless you. Uh, essentially what happened, uh, is that, um, Ray Fowler was doing this, uh, UFO like talk. I, I, it was like a, it was like a conference somewhere in Massachusetts where, um, it was in this small like church or something like that. And it was kind of like a cult stuff. And he was there selling books and giving presentations. And while he was selling books, uh, it's, um, uh, Jim Weiner, uh, one of the witnesses in this case comes up to him and says, "I've been having these dreams. I think they, you know, correspond to this time. I was camping with my buddies in 1976 and we had this u- UFO encounter." So, essentially Fowler does the the heavy lifting on this one and he finds that um through Hypnosis with all these guys and hearing their story. They went out into the Allergash wilderness of Maine, which is very remote. And in the places where they ended up and camping and stuff, the only way to get in there is through airplane. They literally had to be flown in there. And they uh, basically hopped from site to site to site. They were basically, you know, canoeing by day and then camping at night. So they uh, end up having. The, this UFO experience not long it's like two days into their trip and it, it, they make it seem in the episode like all of them have seen all of them saw it but I think it was only Jack Wiener that had seen it that night but he sees this you know light just above the trees and it just kind of like implodes and disappears but uh, a, a couple nights later they're on I believe Eagle Lake and they're on this camping site. It's just the four of them, and they don't have enough food with them at the time. They went fishing during the day, but they didn't catch anything that was really all that edible, so they were going to do some night fishing. So they go out on the lake. It's um, probably like 8.30 at night or something like that, and they build this huge, like massive like bonfire uh, to mark their camping site. So they're out there for maybe 15 minutes, And the guy at the rear of the boat, Chuck Rack, he turns around because he feels like he's being watched, and he sees this light above the trees.
2: I had a feeling that uh, there was someone staring at me from behind me. I turned over my right shoulder like that, and I saw this large, round globe of light that looked exactly like what we had seen two nights previously.
3: So... He, he calls out to the rest of the guys and he's like, hey, over there. And automatically they just know where he's pointing to, where he's looking at this thing. They all turn and they look in the area and they see this light above the trees. So it's uh, Charlie Foltz at the front of the boat who has this brilliant idea that he's going to take the flashlight that they have with them and signal this thing. <laughs> OK, PSA time here again. Uh, if you're going to signal a UFO with a flashlight, there are right ways to do it and there are wrong ways to do it. Now, in two cases, there are two individuals that used the S.O.S. to signal a UFO. And in both cases, they were abducted. In this case, it's the Allagash guys. In the second case, it's Terry Lovelace and the guy that he was with. They signaled S.O.S. and you know what? They, those UFOs, they came and they took them. Don't signal S.O.S.
4: Well, when, when the light started coming toward us, my curiosity was satisfied, and I, I just dropped the flashlight. The, the only thought in my mind was to get to shore. I never looked back.
0: I remember looking over my shoulder, trying to keep an eye on this object as it was coming up behind us, and and it was getting very close i mean it was almost on top of us at this point and i remember thinking that we're not going to outrun this thing there's just no way it it was coming too quickly
3: so if you are signaling sos that ufo is going to come and pick you up and you know what it's going to cost you trauma it's going to cost you trauma just they're very uh, do it
0: they're very literal uh aliens yeah
3: you know very literal aliens (laughs) they thought they were in trouble so they abducted these four guys and the thing is is like at the time they're in their canoe and they're paddling as quick as they can to shore and it's almost like a cut scene in a movie where they're all they're in the boat and then all of a sudden they're on shore and they're looking up at this ufo and they assume that they had just like outrun this thing but like you're thinking deep down in your mind there's no way that four guys in a canoe could outrun a UFO that's just like flying it can go as fast as it really wants to so this episode this incident gets forgotten for years it's like over a decade before uh it's Jim Weiner. he has this like house household in uh accident he falls off a ladder and through it he ends up um uh, He comes down with, um, I think it's like um, temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm -hmm, It -hmm. it, it develops and uh, he starts having these weird dreams. And then he starts talking to his brother and he realizes that his brother is having these dreams. So they come forward to Ray Fowler. They go through hypnosis and they find that these four guys were abducted. And a lot of them described coming up like this tube, which is interesting because in many cases when uh, abductees talk about their being taken, they're never usually describing the process. They're usually, it's just like, hey, there's some aliens. They're taking me somewhere and then boom, you're in the ship. But these guys describe being taken up into a room. They were led to another room in which you know they were stripped naked and they were subjected to medical tests. Now, three out of four of these guys are lifelong experiencers. So Jim and Jack Wiener, they're interesting because they're twins. So they were experiencers. And uh, if you read Ray Fowler's book, uh, the Allagash abductions, which is fucking terrifying, you know, especially for the pictures that are in it, that yeah. make a fucking appearance in this fucking show.
0: Right. But yeah, yeah. What,
3: what you find is like, they're all subjected to medical tests for, by and large, but, like, the, they kind of vary a little bit. They do some interesting stuff with Charlie Foltz, who is the only non-lifelong experiencer among them. He, uh, There's, like, this, like, chest plate that is put over him, and it, it almost scans his body. And um, when Chuck Rack describes it, it, he describes it as being, like, embedded into his chest – and he claims that it's looks like it's for sucking something out of the body and fucking duh, no yeah. thank you
2: all four said they were taken aboard the craft the aliens forced them to strip naked and seemed to be conducting medical examinations the aliens apparently took samples of the men's skin and body fluids their blood
3: urine and semen man just in this episode they play some of the audio from the hypnosis sessions which i don't recommend don't do hypnosis <sighs> hypnosis is terrible in, in, in these situations just just don't do it
0: do yeah, i f- i i will have to second that and you know i have written in the past about regression in uh mm-hmm. my book specifically and those who underwent it and i even featured some of the therapists who have done it and while i respect them as individuals i don't personally condone this, this way of dealing with these things, I think Chris Cogswell says it best. Go to an actual therapist if you mm-hmm. think this has happened to you. Not someone who claims to be an alien abduction therapist. Um, so yeah, yeah, let's get that out there before anything. Um, but you did mention, yeah, they play some of the audio from the regression, which was terrifying. Their face is right in my face. I don't know why.
4: I don't want to know. I don't want to know what they want.
2: They're
0: saying things. They're explaining things with their eyes.
2: In my head, they're saying, don't be afraid. We won't harm you. Do what we say. Just do what we say.
0: Um, they show the sketches that a lot of the dudes made of the aliens and what they experienced. So, I mean, we're getting hit from every angle with, um, with what these men endured, if any of this is true, you know.
3: Yeah, and, I mean, these guys all met through art school, so every single one of them are artists, so... Yeah,
0: which always always made me a little hesitant with this mm-hmm. case, to be honest, because if you know anyone in art school, like, this is what you do. You try to create your grand opus, and maybe this was, like, a big performance piece, but I, I, you know, I have no basis for that whatsoever but when i did hear that they were all involved in the arts somehow that did rub me the wrong way i don't blame people when they are hesitant when they hear something like that
3: yeah and if you look at uh some of the earlier editions of ray fowler's book you can actually order some of the artwork to have in your home in the back portions of the book and okay. like
0: yeah just what i want hanging over yeah. my bed at night
3: <laughs> yeah exactly and like I, it, it, when you look at them, the most terrifying uh, images that are drawn are drawn by Jack Wiener. And in fact, if you look at the book, a lot of his art dominates it. And a lot of stuff happens to Jack Wiener, including, you know, additional experiences after this incident in his Vermont home. And there's like incidents in their childhood that they. Uh, experience together and separately but the the most terrifying parts are the stuff that you don't even realize because it's not included in this episode because you only have so much time so when they were in the middle of doing all this regressive hypnosis jack wiener would have dreams that these beings would appear to him as uh, while he was doing you know mundane things with like uh Jim and Jack, like there's one dream in particular that uh, fucking freaks me out. But uh, he talked about how they were like at a play taking in a performance and he's sitting next to this curtain and this alien head materializes into the curtain and basically says, stop the hypnosis. We don't we don't want them knowing anything.
0: (laughs) So like
3: it, it, it continues like. After this, like this being materializes <laughs> two or three times, to tell him to stop doing this, but like
0: interesting.
3: yeah, I'm like, uh, eh, no, 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 thank you. but um, <laughs> there's um, uh, with these segments, Unsolved Mysteries usually has a, a skeptic come in and say, uh, you know how they don't they don't trust it. The guy's name is Dr. William Cohn, and he believes that abductions experiences are just basically people ripping. Uh, sci-fi movies from television and making them a fixture in their own minds. And um, and John Mack comes on the screen and says, no, it don't work like that.
4: (laughs) Usually these are people who have no interest in abductions, have not read about it, are even unfamiliar with the nature of the beings and are shocked and astounded when they hear someone else has had these experiences as well or that there is material in the media about it.
3: Yeah, which is great because they kind of have this like back and forth between you know Dueling like,
0: psychiatrists, basically.
3: Yeah, yeah, which is great. So, uh, uh, in in short, fuck this segment. I hate it.
0: D- really? Okay, that's good to know. I mean, i've I've met Charlie Foltz, and um, he's a really, really nice guy.
4: Yeah. If you were to tell somebody forty years ago that they would be able to see on a, an invention called a television set, which didn't exist a meteorite crashing into a planet that they can now watch at home that's a reality check folks and yet 40 years ago that's science fiction this happened if you believe it that's all right if you don't believe it i don't care i don't care because it did
0: I know, you know, in the past few years, there's been kind of a falling out with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about it. I never really, really got involved with this case research wise. But I guess one of them came forward and said it was all a hoax or something like that. Well,
3: the interesting thing is, yeah, it was uh, Chuck Rack. Okay. And he came forward like maybe four years ago now. And he said that it wasn't the UFO sighting. The UFO sighting yeah. happened. And everything, including, like, the UFO, like, shooting a beam down and them, like, running back to um, to shore happened. But he just basically said the abduction stuff didn't happen. Okay. And what's interesting is, is if you read Fowler's book, whenever they do uh, hypnotic regression on Chuck Rack, he never gives them much of anything. He never, like fowler kind of chalks it up to him being just like a very strong personality but i guess chuck rack is kind of he has kind of a very strong personality and some are saying it's because he didn't make enough money off of this and stuff like that which you know could be it's very weird because like his explanation is kind of strange. I was like, oh, no, all that stuff happened. We just didn't get abducted. I'm like, OK, dude.
0: OK. Cool. <laughs> you mean 95 percent of the story? Yeah. OK.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Pretty yeah. Much. That's tough, man, because, yeah, I mean, if they did make up the whole abduction part of it, like that just taints the initial sighting, which is just as exciting, you know, yeah. in my opinion. Like, why? Why make it any more? Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say more. Why make it less credible? To be completely yeah. honest. Like, I'm going to believe a UFO sighting over an abduction any day. And I do mm-hmm. believe that some people probably, maybe, possibly have been abducted. I can't say that for sure, obviously. But uh, they mm-hmm. believe they have been, you know. Right. So if if that whole thing was made up, that really sucks. And at the same time, if it wasn't made up, like, clearly there's gaps being filled in from memories they don't remember. And mm-hmm. uh, we know memories faulty and we know hip hypnosis doesn't really help so yeah that that was an interesting case all right so the last one we're gonna cover here rob is another benchmark case and episode i'd say um and this is Rendlesham,
2: december 26 1980 a u.s air force security patrol told of seeing a mysterious unearthly visitor near their air base in england during the next two nights a rash of sightings astounded even the most skeptical military men For years, these sightings were cloaked in secrecy until tonight. For the first time, former Air Force personnel go on camera to tell of a close encounter with what they believe were UFOs.
0: I had Nick Redfern on the show last week talking all about this, so um, why not dive back into this goddamn (laughs) case for the millionth time? You can't Um,
3: escape it. (laughs) I can't. I
0: can't, man. For those who don't know, my first dive into the Rendlesham case was I was trying to write a play about it back in mm-hmm. the early days with uh, our our mutual colleague and friend Peter Robbins and Larry Warren, one of the, and I'm using air quotes, witnesses. Uh, no, the, you,
3: those are heavy air quotes, man. Heavy. I, I
0: think I just broke my index finger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, um, the play never saw the light of day for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but rest assured i am still working with peter robbins on something having to do with this so um stay tuned for that as any good writer says um but let's get into this one for the very first time some of the military people involved with this came forward on on unsolved mysteries just like with roswell and socorro and everything else so um yeah, I don't think we've really got to get too much into the events. I think our listeners know about it. Three consecutive nights of UFO activity over two joint military bases in England, 1980. But yeah, this is the first time we hear from John Burroughs.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I love how like one of the first things that he says is... uh who would come out in the middle of the woods outside an air force base and make a Christmas display? Right. <laughs> when he's talking about the lights see, they they see in the forest. I'm like, oh, that's great. You really thought it was a Christmas display? Okay.
0: <laughs> there have been so many explanations for what it could have been, and um, that is a big part of this. You know, this happened over the holiday. The holidays um at least for us americans even they were over in england and um a lot of people think yeah maybe it was some sort of christmas display which is kind (laughs) of ridiculous but uh yeah
3: yeah Yeah, i think they would have uh noted that you know in their logs and shit like Uh, oh we found a bunch of idiots out there you know putting on some fucking christmas show (laughs) and uh, we shut that shit down
0: (laughs) we shut it down no more frosty the snowman um, so, okay, so, yeah, we got Airmen First Class, John Burroughs, and Jim Penniston, and a few others, they go out to investigate these strange lights that had been reported, and an interesting side note that they add into this, Rob, is the men all had to leave their weapons behind when they went out to investigate, because, uh, they were out of U.S. jurisdiction in the forest where this event initially occurred, so, uh, that was pretty interesting. Can you imagine going out to investigate, like, a downed aircraft, or... possibly a ufo and not having any sort of protection
3: man you better have a strong ass bag light for that shit
0: (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) throw that shit at the aliens or whatever it is but this was interesting too um the object was sighted on radar at heathrow airport or a object and um it was tracked over these military bases this is what they told john burroughs and then it disappeared off radar um, mm-hmm. so these things were tracked on radar, which a lot of people didn't know either.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for a period of time before they lost sight of it, most likely because it like, it came down too low to actually be detected by radar. But yeah, they came across this object in the middle of the woods and I, and what's fascinating about this experience and like my first real kind of familiarity with it was um, Nick Pope's book that came out uh, a few years ago um, that he wrote with Penniston and Burroughs but uh, one of the things that uh, Burroughs describes is how time seemed like it was moving very slowly when they were near this thing.
4: When it was happening everything seemed to go slower we seemed to be in like a I wouldn't say a time warp but like everything appeared to be happening slower to us and everything felt different but when it was all when it disappeared it was like everything was normal again the perception of the ground the um the air the sky the stars the whole nine yards were different
3: so like are you in a different reality when you're close yeah. to this object like what is going on you're experiencing time differently than uh other people and like what they claimed is that when they went looking for this thing they had been gone for like 45 minutes mm-hmm. searching for it, but to them it only felt like I think for Burroughs, he said it felt like it was like maybe 10 15 minutes, but for Penniston, because he got the closest to this thing and even touched it, he claimed that it felt like it was only like a few seconds or something like that like only a few minutes. But, yeah. um, yeah, these guys like experience time very differently. In close proximity to this object, and I must say, on the show, the it did not look anything close to what is you know described or what is on your screen at the time. No. What what they described seeing was like a triangular shaped object with a triangle on top of it, basically. And uh, what's interesting is that they would go on to find like circular impressions in the ground, but uh, the way that Burroughs talks about it, he didn't feel like it was like land it wasn't sitting on the ground it was kind of just like hovering above it a little bit
4: i was hoping when i got out there that basically i would see nothing there would be no telltale evidence that possibly something happened that would make it easier for me because if there's nothing proving that something happened to me you can just kind of check it off but when you get out there and you find damage to the trees depressions in the ground and stuff that makes it even more unexplainable
3: It's an interesting feature of it and then yeah like the next night hot had heard of this you know earlier in the day saying you know it was kind of a joke around the base like a couple of guys saw a ufo oh and- dude
0: i have to mention <laughs> when they did that scene in this though they reenacted the scene where charles halt like comes on to base what's going
1: on Colonel, you're not going to believe this, but Burroughs and Penniston were running around the woods last night chasing after UFOs.
0: <laughs> oh my god, the laugh that that guy <laughs> made was so <laughs> Weasley. He was such <laughs> a little dick. Like yeah. that, that kid in school who would like make fun of you for wearing, you know, off-brand sneakers or something.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's,
0: that's yeah it was a good reenactment. Great. Like, I wanted to punch him square in the nose for that, but... Uh
3: yeah but uh you know they uh they end up going out the next night Mm -hmm. and uh you know there's reports of lights in the woods again and um they end up taking um light alls out into the forest i was very skeptical i find what had allegedly taken place hard to believe
4: and i was really going to debunk it quite frankly and as. events unfolded I became more and more concerned that there may be something to this I kept telling myself that there had to be some type of an explanation for it but I certainly couldn't find one and even to this day I I can't explain what happened
3: they just go out and they investigate this thing they kind of do this like it's like a cat and mouse game mm-hmm. for like a while and they follow it through the forest into this clearing they see these like it, it was initially this like red object not even an object because it looked. I think what they had on screen at the time was pretty accurate to what they ended up seeing. It's like this, like orb of light, kind of like almost egg shaped. But he described it looking like kind of an eye, and it kind of got close there for a little bit, and then it took off. So they followed this thing through the forest into a clearing, and in this clearing, they see like three smaller objects in the sky. They kind of. Doing this, uh, these maneuvers, and some of the eyewitnesses claim that they were like doing like almost search patterns, searching grids, looking mm-hmm. for something. And eventually, one of these objects kind of just breaks off, comes near, uh, near them, and drops a beam of light down at the ground, not far from where um, Halt is. We could very clearly see
4: it. It of dancing about in the sky. And it sent down beams of light. I noticed other beams of light coming down from the same object, falling different places on the base. My boss was standing in his front yard at Woodbridge, and he could see the beams of light falling down. And the people in the weapon storage area and several other places on the base also reported the
3: lights. So he uh, he says that's the closest he ever got to it, and. Even Burroughs claims that he went out the second night to see if, you know, he could see anything. He wasn't involved in I think in the initial investigation, but he was nearby with some other people and uh, apparently this blue light he, he witnessed came down and actually flew like they made it seem like it flew right through their truck. But um <laughs> <laughs> the, the light all that they had that wasn't working it lit up briefly for like a second when it came down so <laughs> that was interesting
0: yeah there was just a ton of shit going on it was like pandemonium in that forest for three nights which is interesting and you know i talked to nick Redfern a lot last week about just all the crazy stuff that was going on and like you mentioned earlier the time slowing down aspect every witness seeing something differently like it does lend some credence to some of the theories Nick's bringing forward on like hallucinogens or uh, holograms like if you don't buy into any of the stuff that Nick Redford said at least we can all admit like there was some crazy stuff going on there this was not just one object in the sky over these military bases you know
3: yeah yeah absolutely it's a uh, a bunch of different things but i mean like nick always has a different angle with which to come at a lot of these stories and uh, i mean he's got his angle with the roswell incident and there, there are these cases that people interject their like weird kind of angles at them there's for instance with the um antonio vias boas abduction from 1957 there is one eyewitness that came forward saying that it was a cia led operation to like kind of like an mk ultra kind of thing to see how they could uh, take lsd and turn it into like an alien abduction or something like that i don't and and this has been parroted around for cases like V.S. Boas, Betty and Barney Hill, the Pascagoula guys. It's like uh, I don't I don't totally buy it, but like you know I I don't totally shoot it down either. Yeah. but it's there kind of where I land to, You
0: know, yeah. putting it out there. I'm on the fence. It, it's interesting, you know. Right. saying there's an alternate explanation for all of these cases. Of course there is. We haven't solved them. They are unsolved mysteries. Bam!
3: Yeah, fuck. We're bringing it full circle, goddammit.
0: What else do we... Oh, okay. So they did their due diligence. They got a skeptic on this one. And guess who it is?
2: James McGahey is an astronomer and noted UFO skeptic who is director of two private observatories. And the burden of proof for any event that is extraordinary is upon those making the claim. Not...
4: Upon those who uh look at it from a skeptical perspective.
0: Where is the evidence? Show me the evidence. And that's what science is all about. <laughs> McGay Hayes in the house. The yep. worst skeptic they could have found to be involved with this case.
3: Fucking oh.
0: Uh, he sucks, man. I'm sorry. He does. I'm all he, for he's... like bringing someone on to like debate this case but holy shit like he had no he had nothing to add to it I he had okay he had one interesting thing that he said and I think you brought this up in one of our earlier cases so you had the first night there's UFOs reported that's fine All right, he says like the nights after that they everyone has it in their minds that they're gonna see a UFO so that's obviously mm-hmm. gonna influence their perception of what's going on out there same with like going into a haunted house if you're going in expecting to see or hear something you're probably going to see or hear something but um yeah. he yeah. he used the whole lighthouse explanation for this which i think has been pretty much debunked at this point
3: i i forget but there was like a it was a special on it might have been josh gates's special on ufo's that he did a couple years ago he he went to that site and he found that like uh there was a panel on the back of it that wouldn't have even ended up aiming toward the forest, so it kind of just shot it down. Nice. Yeah, so the lighthouse has been debunked a million times over.
0: I mean, with any of these cases, they are still unsolved to this day, like we said, but um, I'm glad they did Rendlesham. I thought it was good overall. Um, It brought a lot of people out of the woodwork to uh, come forward with their uh, experiences, and um, I was interested to... To ask you this, do we know the Hulk tape? This must have come out, like, after this, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like they would have included that in this episode, which they did not. So that must have come out a lot later after this episode had been uh, created, I assume.
3: Yeah, I think it was kind of like a... Yeah, it was kind of like an update or something like that. But okay. yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: Another truly creepy thing to listen to. but um. Oh, yeah. Yeah, something that wasn't creepy to listen to... Rob, was your conversation with John Tenney. For those who know who John is or don't know who he is, he's one of the leading weirdos out there looking into everything paranormal, UFOs, the occult, you name it, he's done it. And uh, you had him on the Our Strange Skies podcast to talk about his involvement with Unsolved Mysteries. And uh, a question, a burning question he had for Robert Stack, the host, like, do you believe any of this stuff? And if you don't mind, I'd love to play a little bit of that right now for the audience to hear. Is that cool?
1: Yeah, man, go for it. (laughs) Cool. I was going to Wayne State University. I thought I would be a history teacher uh, specializing in folklore. And I got a call from a a friend of mine who was a researcher on Unsolved, and he said, you know, we need another person to pick up some slack. We're getting into these weirder episodes, because originally Unsolved was mostly murder mysteries and unsolved kidnapping cases. Mm -hmm. And as that show evolved, you know, eventually at that time with no internet and you know, uh, you, you ran, you literally ran out of cases that of unsolved murders. And so they started turning to the paranormal and the supernatural and discussing things like Lizzie Borden or the Gulf breeze, UFO sightings, things like that. And so a friend of mine contacted me and said, do you want to pick up some of the slack on some of this research that we have? That is really weird. They knew that I, that's what I was into. And so I spent probably, I think two years, uh, doing research uh, and kind of reconnaissance for Unsolved.
3: That's pretty – that's that's uh, honestly really awesome because uh, Robert Stack, um, I think, haunted my dreams for a certain par- portion of my childhood. It he, he was just <laughs> – he had an air about himself. The way he projected himself on that show, uh, it just scared the bejesus out of me. Um, what was he like? And, I mean, I've asked you this question on Twitter before, but, like, what kind of person was Robert Stack like? Because, like, it, it, the, yeah, I have I this mean, mythology in my head about the man, and uh, I don't know, It probably won't go anywhere. <laughs> you
1: no, know, your mythology about him is is right, but it's, your the mythology that people have about Robert Stack is, like, at a four. And he was always at, like, a ten. I mean, he was old-school, golden age of Hollywood. So, mm-hmm. when he walked anywhere, like, he commanded this presence. But, at the same time, like in old Hollywood, you everybody was drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a lot of times if you listen to the voiceovers in Episodes of Unsolved Mysteries where you can hear him kind of struggling to get through the the, the voiceovers <laughs> yeah, because he's yeah. been drinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, he was, you know, classic Hollywood. Uh, he knew that he had been around for a long time. He knew that people loved him. And there was one time I had a discussion with him because i had been working and researching for them and my thing was like does robert stack believe in anything that he's saying and so i, I had a chance one time where i asked my I, I pretty much just put it like that i was like um, you know mr stack as when you're talking about all this stuff ufos and ghosts and psychics and murders you know unsolved murders like do you believe in any do you have have you ever had any supernatural experiences and he was kind of coy about it, but he kind of he lapsed into this story about a really good friend of his who had worked for the Navy, and had recounted to Robert Stack how he uh, had seen while in the Navy ufos flying around under the water well you know unidentified submerged objects underneath the water and they would burst through the water and out into the sky and and robert stack was like you know this guy doesn't have any reason to lie to me so i believe what he told me and then he launched into another story about how his wife had gone and seen a psychic when she first moved to california and the psychic told her You know, I I don't really see very much in your future, but you're going to end up marrying someone who looks like Robert Stack. And she actually ended up marrying Robert Stack. So (laughs) when when we left that conversation, he was like, you know, so I don't doubt what my friend told me about UFOs. And I also don't doubt that the psychic was right. So I guess those are the types of things I believe. And he kind of just left it there.
0: Yeah. So I thought that was a really really interesting um appendix to bring to this episode rob but um in <laughs> I, I think we covered a lot here man um this was super fun to do with you um but we're not done we're not done a little news netflix is rebooting unsolved mysteries with uh the executive producers of stranger things um yeah. hopefully someday soon who knows with everything that's going on in the world but um
3: i think it comes out july 1st ah
0: sweet okay yep do we know who's hosting it or anything like that i
3: know we don't know a whole hell of a lot about it which uh i'm kind of upset about they've kind of kept it close to the chest so i guess we'll see you know what it comes out we haven't even heard if there's like a host or what uh, what the format is going to be is it just the yeah yeah, is it just the name, Unsolved Mysteries, or is it going to be like it used to? So it should be it should be interesting.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, we don't know if there's even going to be a host. I mean, it looks like they're only covering one Unsolved Mystery every episode. Um, yeah. So that'll be cool. You know, we'll get a really in-depth look at these things. Uh, probably Jordan Peele. I'm going with him. He's done Twilight Zone. He might as well do the show next right
3: yeah he'd be perfect for it i think he'd
0: be good (laughs) yeah Yeah. rob that's gonna do it here on the unsolved mysteries ufo stack pack hour um on the main feed but rob you're gonna stick around and cover a few more really good cases of unsolved mysteries with me for a patreon episode for uh our somewhere in the Skies patreon subscribers it'll be up there for um either right when this comes out, or just a little bit after. But um, before we go here on the main feed and go over to Patreon, Rob, where can we find everything you're up to? What do you got going on with the podcast, with your Patreon? Yeah, give it to me, man.
3: The best places to keep updated uh, for new episodes and all that is OurStrangeGuys.com You can also follow me on all of the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and all that stuff. Just search Our Strange Skies, and you will be updated with UFO news and all other sorts of crazy crap.
0: I love it. I love it, man. And you just did a true crime episode that literally blew me away, so I definitely suggest people check that out too.
3: I don't do it often, but sometimes I'll I'll step away and do something that isn't so much uh, UFOs. But uh, yeah, most of the time, UFOs.
0: Yeah, maybe another podcast host should uh, take your uh, follow your lead on that and stop talking about UFOs for once. Again, I'm looking <laughs> in the mirror. This keeps happening. Um, anyways, let's head on over to Patreon. And Rob, thank you again, man, for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies.
3: I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me back on.